Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter. And you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to our very first introduction episode of this podcast. I'm super excited that you have joined us on this journey or joined me on this journey. This introduction episode is really to help you learn a little bit about who I am and what you can expect in future episodes. So we will be diving into fraud specific things on the next episode. This is really just for you to get to know me and also you know, learn a little bit about what to expect because this will be a little bit different than anything I've done before. I am Carice Hendrick. I am a lifelong learner. I have a strong sense of justice and a passion for online fraud prevention. That probably makes me an absolute nerd or an official nerd, maybe. (laughs) One time I sat on the plane next to a guy who was uh, leaving Seattle from Comic-Con and I was going down to, I think, San Francisco at the time. And or was it Vegas? I don't even remember. And uh, he said that in his perspective, a nerd is just another term for someone who's wildly passionate about something. And I thought, okay, well, now I'm just going to adopt the term fraud nerd and I'm going to own it. So I really, you know, I've had a unique career path. I started in a call center, like a lot of people in this industry. On the customer service side, I was in the merchant processing world at the time and just was really curious and uh, really enjoyed talking to the people in the risk department in the lunchroom. And sometimes I would get to send suspicious calls their way and I would, you know, ask them how I could help. And I just was really interested in it. And when there was a position that became open on that team, I applied and got it. And it was probably one of the biggest um, decisions of my life. I just had no idea that that would be the case (laughs) then. I was a single mom in a fairly small city and, you know, just needed to find uh, the right job. But man, once you get that fraud bug, and I, I think a lot of you that are listening totally get it you don't really have a choice what your career is anymore. It chooses you, not in the sense that a Harry Potter wand does, but it does, I think we choose it, but it chooses us as well. And that's something I really enjoy about this industry is even if you know we're very different in a lot of ways, because we have that commonality, I mean, I consider most of the people in my network friends in, in some level. Some are some of my closest friends because we have that in common and we get it. We understand, we have a shared journey, right? So we like, oh, okay, you know, we, we know that everyone in fraud or most everyone in fraud is very passionate and has strong senses of justice and curiosity. And it's just, they're the ties that bond us. So After working on the processing side, I then moved to the merchant side and worked 
for two different online companies. One was a small startup and another was a very large travel company. During that time, I was also speaking at conferences. I just kind of started, I, I, you know, I never thought that I had a lot to say, but was strongly encouraged by others because of my unique uh, experiences on the processing side. I have always had a much different approach to chargebacks than most people. And that has made it of interest at, at conferences. And so by doing that work, I really caught the in addition to the fraud bug, I also found that my true passion is to help and support the other people on the front lines. I worked for the largest trade association in fraud and payments with the top brands in the world as members, and I was the in-house industry expert at the time, especially for the Americas, but I also supported Europe as well. And I just love that, figuring out, you know, what people should speak about at conferences and who should do the speaking and then what other programming throughout the year. And I uh, got to help create a few committees and affinity groups that are still going on now, like the Gamer Safety Alliance. Um, I was not the only person that created that by any means. It was um, from a very strong contingent in the online gaming sector of those fraud teams, but I definitely helped them create that as well as the payments committee, the fraud committee. There was a lot of them and just got to do a lot of really cool things, writing white papers, speaking um, on behalf of merchants from a fraud perspective in publications online and in print and just a lot of that. And I just absolutely adored it. But it was time for me to leave after um, about two and a half years. And I chose to continue on the path of serving other merchants and, and really supporting the industry. And so I then worked with CMP, cardnotpresent.com and the CMP Expo, and also started my own consultancy called Chargelytics. I basically just took chargebacks and analytics and smushed them together and uh, called it Chargelytics. And uh, in that consultancy, I do work with mostly enterprise, though a lot of you know mid-size uh, and large merchants as well on chargeback reduction, payment and fraud abuse, you know, charge, well, obviously chargebacks, but chargeback reduction, fraud, which is, you know, not all fraud are chargebacks and not all chargebacks are fraud. In refunding abuse is something new that you will be hearing me talk about, especially in the next few episodes, because it's something that just not enough companies know about right now. And it's thanks to COVID, it's really impacting you hard. But I have kind of, I, I've just kind of carved out this unique space in the industry where because of the merchants I've worked with over the years, it seems like whenever anyone and, and name a company, and I probably have heard from them in the last year or, or a little more, when they have a question and they don't know who to ask, they reach out to me. And that trust is something I will never take for granted ever. I have a lot of rules and principles around that trust. One of them you'll find out you know, on the podcast, I don't name company names. That's something that I take seriously because so many merchants trust in me with their vulnerabilities and what's going on on the fraud side and what, you know, systems they use and what they like and what they don't like and what works and how it works and all of that without NDAs in place. And I'm not going to mess that up. I am so grateful that they do that. So while I'll be sharing stories from those times and anecdotes, I will never say that this came from so-and-so. The only time I may name a merchant is if they are in a public, you know, if there's an article or several articles about them, like a breach, perfect, you know, somewhat 
relevant and timely example of that would be the Twitter hack with, I hate the word hack guys, because we all know it's account takeover, but it's kind of, how long am I going to keep this fight up? And what am I just going to give in? But, you know, the Twitter account takeovers happening, you know, that was all over the news and it was poignant. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from the companies that do end up in the news. And, you know, just because they end up in the news, that doesn't mean that they're any worse than anyone else. We all know that every company is struggling with some form of scams that take, try to take advantage of their companies or their customers or all kinds of stuff from, you know, from credit card fraud to promo code abuse to refund abuse. There's just so many ways. So, you know, I really work with a lot of those guys and that's something that I, I take super seriously, but, uh, the stories and the anecdotes I think are, are really something that can be learned from. So that's something that you can kind of look forward to is me looping those in when, when needed. The biggest, most important thing or things to me are education and collaboration in fraud prevention. We didn't go to school for this. This isn't something that is, you know, really a common, there's not a common education path. There's not certification in online fraud specifically. And so a lot of times, you know, it's all about working with each other and learning from each other. And, you know, the bad guys work together. So we need to, too. That's such, so simplified. But especially in the last two years, I've really, my eyes have been opened through a few different people into the dark web, as well as the ClearNet sites that are being used for open discussion from fraudsters. And they work together so well. That's why they're so successful. They just free flowing information. Now they don't have privacy policies. They don't have legal teams that they have to get sign off from. They don't have to ask permission for budget because they'll just steal it from you. Like it's, you know, not a fair fight by any means, but the only way we will ever have even somewhat of an even playing field is if we all work together and share information through education as well as just, you know, informally sharing information. One example of that is towards the beginning of COVID, I was getting a lot of calls from the biggest ticketing and uh, travel companies, as I'm sure you could imagine. Their sales went down very sharply and their chargebacks went up very high with people who had to cancel their travel or had their travel or their concerts or their sporting events canceled. And after having so many of them contact me, I said, why don't we just set up a call and let you guys just talk to each other? And yeah, sure. Sometimes I have stuff to fly in there and sometimes I have to reel myself back in and, and let them talk freely without me getting so excited and wanting to share so many things. But it's been magic, absolute magic. And there's been quite the trajectory from the beginning of COVID to now of things that have happened, right? The chaos of trying to figure out how to respond to chargebacks so they can get so much money and all the way through. But I think the biggest thing is the camaraderie as well, just because there is so much uncertainty. It's been a really good thing for a lot of them to, you know, every other week meet up with each other on Zoom. I do that for retailers as well every other week since COVID. And those are things I'm doing totally for free just because I love it so much and I want to facilitate it. And, you know, why not me? So that just gives you an example of how much I really do like, walk the talk, as they say. <laughs> but I just know how important it is not only for the 
global fight against online fraud, but also for our own mental health and our own sanity and just, you know, camaraderie as, as we're all working from home now. So not that I really, I'm not full of myself, but I feel like uh, someone would yell at me if I didn't, I, if I didn't at least brag a tiny bit. I, in addition to owning my own business and all of that, I, last year I received the Legend of E-Commerce Fraud Award from Tel Aviv University uh, as part of FraudCon, which is coming up by the way, and speakers are open. If you're listening to this right when it's coming up, the call for speakers is open at FraudCon. But uh, I was actually the very first person awarded that. And uh, I jokingly have said I'm the two-year champ since FrogCon was canceled due to COVID this year. But um, getting a Lifetime Achievement Award before, right before you turn 40 is quite interesting. But I'm so grateful for that. And a lot of it has had to do with uh, my previous podcast that I was a part of, the Online Frogcast with Brett Johnson, former cyber criminal. And I really enjoyed being the co-host of that and think that we brought a lot to the table from his perspective and my perspective. He made the decision to go in a different direction and I have wished him nothing but the best. And so this is kind of new for me to start, you know, my own podcast as well. But I, there were just so many people who were saying, well, what's next? You know, what we we're getting our fraud fix weekly from the Frogcast. What's next? And so what's next is fraudology. And I'm not going to do this alone. There's going to be lots of different interviews as well, mixed in with some solo episodes. I feel really funny just talking in my office to a microphone without having a conversation with someone. So <laughs> there'll probably be a little bit of both. Uh, but sometimes lining up uh, interviews when I am you know, in a hundred different directions at a hundred miles an hour can be challenging. So we'll see what the mix up is as far as solo episodes and, and interviews, but I have several lined up that I'm really excited about. So what is fraudology? This is a term that I sort of made up kind of like chargelytics, kind of like fraudcast. You're seeing a pattern here. However, the fraudcast credit always goes to my husband, who is literally the punniest person I've ever met in my life. And that is punny with a P. <laughs> Sometimes it's funny, but always punny. I don't think fraudology is made up as other words, because it really, to me, is the science and study of fraud. You know, sociology is the study and science of social behavior and society. Psychology is the study of human behavior and, and the brain and so fraudology is the study of fraud. And I feel like I've been a student of fraudology for pff, over a decade and a half now. It's crazy how much it's changed. I mean, uh, it makes me feel so old and 15 years isn't that long in other industries, but in this industry, it's a lifetime. We didn't have mobile. We didn't have apps. We didn't have, I mean, there was no PCI uh, compliance. We, when I worked at the processor, we would have spreadsheets and spreadsheets, like hundreds of them stacked up on our desk with full credit cards to load into terminals. And we would just leave them for the day. Like that's no longer so many companies and new business models that have been created. And so I really feel like I've had a front row seat to fraud since the beginning of my career. I, one anecdote that I feel like a lot of people remind me of, and I certainly don't ever want this to be defining of my career, but when I was at the merchant processor, I was handed the Silicon Valley pro bank portfolio, which I think now in hindsight is probably because I was the youngest one on the team and kind of understood e-commerce, but they Silicon Valley Bank, for those of you that don't know, is the 
bank for startups in Silicon Valley. I guess that was kind of, <laughs> it, that doesn't mean that that's the only bank that they use, but it's a very common one and they uh, do all their banking with them. And so merchant processing was just a natural extension. And at that point they didn't do their own processing. So they had the company that I work for do the risk and fraud and processing for them. And one of the very first companies that I had was a social media company. And they were on a significant month in the chargeback program. For those of you that don't know what a chargeback program is, chargebacks are for the consumers to like when your credit card is stolen, you call your bank and you say it was stolen and they give you your money back. Well, if your card was stolen and used online, your bank is actually issuing a chargeback to that merchant to be able to pay them back eventually through the process. Now, merchants do have the opportunity to respond to those, to, you know, look at the claim and say, oh, that's not actually what happened or, you know, all that. And we'll go into this in so much more detail later. Don't worry, because anyone who knows me knows that chargebacks is one of my favorite subjects. I hope that didn't make you turn off the (laughs) podcast because you think I'm absolutely crazy. But so they were on a significant month of the chargeback program through Visa. And when you got to I think at the time it's, it's changed a little bit, but I think it was like 10 months, nine or 10 months or something like that. You could lose the privilege of accepting Visa cards online. And since Visa and MasterCard are processed together, it would be both of them. So there was a smaller startup um, that was a social media company that was in a significant month of the chargeback program when I started my role. And I had to work with their um, top I don't remember his title at the time, but he's one of the founders and uh, explained to him that they had significant chargebacks and here's why, and here's what you can do. And it turned out a lot of it was on advertisement fraud and that if they just had a human looking at it, that they would have been able to catch it so that they would not charge the carton and instead void the sale, preventing a chargeback. And because the card brands feel like the majority of chargebacks can be prevented by merchants and I actually happen to agree with that philosophy when you want them to and when you're you know, when you're looking at the right things. So I called him up or we were talking on we had several phone calls and I told him, you know, okay, well when you have a human reviewing it, then you'll know right away. They'll write know right away if it's fraud because the technology back in 2007 was not the same now. Now you could write a program for it or you could buy so much different kinds of technology. There was only one fraud prevention technology back then and it wouldn't have worked for this company. I uh, helped them get off the monitoring program, but when I was explaining this to him that you needed to get another person, he said, "Uh, it's only myself and two employees in my loft apartment. I can't afford to hire someone new. And I said, well, you're gonna have to weigh out whether you want to risk losing the, you know, the ability to charge credit cards, which is primarily your income stream or your revenue stream, or you're going to have to hire someone on, even if it's an intern, I'll train them. No biggie. Well, I got off the phone one time and said, this guy thinks they're going to be the next MySpace. And can you guess who it was? Obviously, I was working with Facebook at the time. That's a story that I didn't tell for so many years. Brett actually made me tell it at the on the broadcast two years ago. That's how much I honor merchant privacy. But at this point, there's been so much time passed. Like I and I'm sure if I signed an NDA, which I'm sure I did, it probably expired like 10, 11 years ago. So that shows you, though, and I, I think it's a good example of how 
lucky I have been to be able to sit in the front lines of fraud all the way through. I have worked with the biggest companies in the world in various ways throughout my career. My daughter's favorite game is name the name of a company online to her friends like she'll tell her friends name a company online I bet my mom knows them (laughs) so you know I but I tell you all this because I think that because I am in this 10,000 foot view perspective and I have a front row seat to a lot of this that's where a lot of this information is going to come from and they may not all be fraud trends or issues that you are experiencing in your current company but I think we all just love fraud stories in general and love to learn and it can just be really fun to even just listen to as you are working on it so and and if you don't work in fraud I hope that you enjoy this as well I know there will be a lot of people listening that work on the fraud technology side for vendors or service providers or others they're just curious about it I was told yesterday from my hairdresser actually first time in seven months getting a haircut it was awesome that a boy whose hair she cuts, he's a senior in high school and he was going to be an engineer and I haven't gotten to talk to him to find out why, but he told her that he uh, is now wanting to go into cyber fraud. And I was like, what? Nobody goes into this on purpose. We all go into it on accident, but maybe that's the old school. Maybe the new generation does go into it on purpose. And that's exciting to me. So I feel like, you know, there's no formal, like I said earlier, there's no formal education path. It's all OJT or on the job training. And it's really something that we all kind of know a few different pieces of, right? So the best way to learn more is to listen to podcasts, go to conferences. You know, we learn lessons through trial and error. We learn lessons through asking our peers like, hey, how did you do that? Or are you seeing this? Or, you know, who are you using for X? Those are the things that are helping us get a leg up and also just providing a a level of community in an industry is not common in a lot of big industries. But in this industry, I feel like we're pretty close knit and, and mostly know each other. If I don't know you directly, I probably know someone who does and not just through LinkedIn. Uncommon for me to get a LinkedIn request from someone that I have like 150 people in common with. Uh, but, you know, we probably know maybe half of them in person. So, you know, the lessons that we learn, it's through, you know, going to conferences. Well, speaking of conferences, when we had events, when conferences existed, that was a really good way to learn. But if you missed a conference, then you miss learning, right? And if you uh, only went to one conference and not the other ones. And there'd be a big chunk of other companies that you wouldn't know. Um, and so I do think that's, you know, another way that I've been able to help the industry is with a lot of introductions. So because, you know, the webinars and podcasts and peer calls, these are all things that we are able to use for learning, but we're all in a different path. And so that's why the collaboration piece is so important as well. And you know, we'll never really hit a ceiling on learning and studying fraudology or learning fraud because the fraudsters are continually innovating themselves and adapting to new technology as well as there's just so many different verticals of fraud. I mean, when I only worked in retail fraud and online, it was actually online rentals. So that was a whole other, you know, high risk situation. It was the very first online rental company for anything more than a DVD. So we had very high dollar items and there was a lot of fraud there, unique business models. 
then I went to a travel company that's an international travel company. Their fraud was completely different. And then when I went to the trade association and I was working with everyone, I really learned that online gaming has completely different fraud than the travel industry or theme parks. And marketplaces have completely different fraud than a traditional retailer. And, you know, online dating has different fraud than, you know, just they're all different, right? And so you might become an expert in the one vertical that you're in, but even if you were to go to the direct competitor, the companies still have different processes, different systems, different people, different attitudes on risk. Like there's so many factors that determine what type of fraud a company is going to have, as well as what problems they have, what issues they have, what you know solutions they need, all of that. I think it's you know important to say that fraud really depends on the price point, the product, the reputation or the desirability of a brand or the item that you purchase, the business model. You know, if you're a marketplace, you have both buyer and seller fraud. You're not just dealing with one side. If you're a digital goods place, you don't have access to shipping address. So that's like one less point. So I think that's another reason why I absolutely love this industry is because it's always moving forward. And I really try to remember and learn and take in what each company, you know, is fate or each bucket of company, like vertical of company is facing now and what have they done. I, just the other day on the retailer call, someone was saying that they were having a specific problem that no other retailer was having. But I said, oh, I know the ticketing guys, they've had to deal with this before. And so I sent an email to introduce them. So you just never know who can be helpful in that. But everybody has a different set of skills or information. And so this is another reason why I think the podcast will be so great is that you can learn from other people without restarting a job every year or two. So I, sorry, I'm trying to catch up with my notes. This is this being the very first introduction episode. I wanted to make sure that I was staying on task more or less. Um, especially new business models for e-commerce are definitely very you know, attractive to fraudsters and the fraudsters are going to be very creative and, and trying to figure out how did you take advantage of you? Because here's the deal. If you have a product or service that you make money on online, cyber criminals are going to figure out how to make money on it too. There are so many people who think, oh, well, my business model isn't going to get hit. Like nobody cares about highlighters or whatever it is. And uh, <laughs> If they don't want your product, they'll use you for card testing to see if the card works and then go somewhere else that's more expensive to, you know, make a higher dollar purchase. Because if they were to have three cards decline on a high dollar purchase in a row, that would obviously set off flags. So they'll figure out any way possible. And a lot of times the only way you know if you have fraud is if you have chargebacks. But especially now with COVID, there's several new fraud tactics that don't result in chargebacks, but you still lose the money and the product. So we are going to get into that very soon because that's one of my big soapbox uh, topics right now that I just don't think enough people do. I know that enough people don't know about this because A, the fraudsters are just making a killing at it. And B, I've had to tell some of the biggest brands in the world that this is happening to them because of dark web monitoring that I am aware of. I have recently uh, gone into partnership with someone who has uh, access to all those. And I don't like being the grim reaper of fraud, but I do want everyone to know about it. (laughs) I guess that's a worse, that's a worse uh, nickname than others I've had, like fraud encyclopedia or um, others like that. (laughs) 
what unites us, and I alluded to it earlier, I just, that's what I think is so special about this industry, and I do get so passionate about it. My husband is in a general IT industry, and they have their own conferences and things, but it's not like he talks to their biggest competitor in his team or even another type of company that, you know, works on something similar. They're all very siloed, but in fraud, we can't be because the fraudsters are just too quick. And if they're taking advantage of one company and that company figures out how to close the gap, you can bet that they're not just going to pack it up and go get a legitimate job. They're going to go, you know, theoretically or kind of figuratively across the street or to the competitor website and try it there. So that's why we need to talk to each other. But also, like I said, there's just so many things that unite us. You know, a lot of us are most of us, I would say, are really passionate about this. We're problem solvers. We have creativity, you know, because we have to, right? We have to creatively problem solve things. A strong sense of justice, tenacity. I often say that most of us got into fraud by accident, but we stay on purpose. And I fully admit and say that it's completely cheesy to say that, but it's also very much the truth. So here's what you can expect out of the next several episodes. Hopefully there are tens, if not hundreds of them. (laughs) This is going to be an extension of my focus on education and collaboration. Information on new threats and issues. We'll be sharing stories and examples, though obviously no merchant names unless the merchant is on, is being interviewed, which would be cleared by their uh, PR department or if the merchant is on the podcast anonymously, which we might kind of have fun with because speaking of PR departments, they don't always want their fraud departments to talk, which is a shame. I don't really understand why cybersecurity is more accepted to know that every company online has a cybersecurity company or department, but for whatever reason, fraud is like kept in the basement or in a closet somewhere and not usually called in their fraud departments that have so many different names, you know, customer financial services, customer revenue protection, lots of other ones because the companies don't want to call them fraud. And obviously trust and safety is an, a newer uh, branch of fraud. It includes, you know, payment fraud and abuse, but also so much more for consumers, especially in business models that have an in-person component, whether it's ride sharing or, you know, home sharing or staying and all of that. So a little different. We will definitely dive into trust and safety at some point in this podcast journey. Interviews, some people you may have already heard of. Others will be people who I think you should know. They'll all be people I think you should know. And I know this is going to be controversial, but before anyone starts sending me a lot of emails, I am going to be very judicious about the service provider interviews that come on here. To be honest, if anyone wants to learn more about your company or hear you, they can go to a bunch of other podcasts. They can go to your website. They can go to webinars. They can go to conferences, but a lot of information from merchants to merchants. And obviously we know you guys are, you know, listening and participating as well are that's a piece that isn't really easily accessible. That's something that is harder to get a fix for unless you're at an in-person closed door conference. And so I'm going to work really hard to bring in people who are merchants, are former merchants, who really have been those uh, frontline fraud fighters, so to speak, as well as a few ancillary positions around there and support positions. 
Speaking of providers, while I'm on the topic, this is something new for this podcast that I haven't done before. The Fraudology podcast will have sponsors. And that's something I really thought long and hard about. I never want to be seen as a sellout, but editing a podcast and supporting it does have a cost structure. And so I also had had several companies that I think highly of reach out to me and ask about sponsoring the previous podcast. And so the first company I reached out to is already sponsored the first several episodes and you will get to learn more about them on the next one. But I just want everyone to know that I have given this so much thought that at least at the beginning, the companies that will be sponsors will be I shouldn't say curated, but selected because there unfortunately are some companies I just can't endorse publicly. I I just can't. And it's not, it's my own personal reasons. Uh, A lot of it is because I am often confided in by merchants about their experiences with providers. I have my own experiences with providers when I'm working with clients and some have been amazing and others have been Nothing short of disappoint or short of disappointing, I guess. And I don't ever want to suggest a company that I wouldn't suggest in my consultancy when someone's paying me for that advice. That doesn't mean that I don't want you to still go through due diligence. I absolutely do. Not every company, there's not a single fraud company out there that's good for everyone. I know that's going to be controversial too, but it's just the truth that there are some amazing companies out there, and I. I'm all for it. There are so many reasons why you would use certain companies. It's really important to have a layered approach. So having more than one relationship with different types of companies is important. But some companies have not put their customers first. Others have not updated their product as much. And so I'm going to try to be as diplomatic as possible. I'm fearing the first time that a company contacts me and wants to sponsor and I have to say no thank you, but this is the only way that I could provide sponsorship on my podcast and help merchants get to know about, you know, technology they maybe don't know about before, because I get asked about that a lot. You know, who should I use for this or who's good about this? So I think it serves you guys as well. It's not just about the money at all. And you'll probably learn new things about the technologies that I'm providing because I'm going to tell stories. It's not going to be just like, reading copy and being boring. But I just kind of wanted to, you know, set the stage now, set expectations now that the medium, the mid ground that I had to come to was the companies that will be featured on the podcast as sponsors will be ones that I feel good about. And that's just, that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) It can be challenging sometimes being in this position because I do know that I have a pretty enviable Rolodex. But part of the reason why people respond to my emails is because I don't spam them all the time. And because I do try to stay out of the vendor merchant dynamic as much as possible. However, I know I'll be doing an episode fairly soon about that vendor merchant dynamic because it has definitely shifted even more one direction since COVID hit. And uh, yeah, if anyone heard my stern uh, conversation on the last podcast that I was on titled uh, and well the episode was titled uh, merchants are from Mars vendors are from Venus it'll probably be similar to that I guess I got my mom tone on (laughs) so a lot of this is I think that 
that is it guys. I really, I wrote three pages of notes and we just got through them in a little over 30 minutes. I really am excited about this journey and I'm excited for you to come on it with me. And I hope that you, it can be interactive, right? I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you are not connected with me, that is the best place to find me. We will eventually have a website for the podcast and probably dedicated email and all of that, but I am trying to move faster than I usually do rather than like thinking about things for months and months and then getting them done. So we just have, you know, LinkedIn now as well as email. If you do want to ask a question for the podcast or reach out and provide any feedback, you can find me on LinkedIn or the best way as well as to contact me through my assistant at info at chargelyticsconsulting.com. That's C-H-A-R-G-E-L-Y-T-I-C-S consulting.com. That is it for our very first introduction episode. You guys, thank you so much for listening to the whole thing. I cannot wait to do this all over again soon and to talk to you very soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.